You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It's been more than a week, so yeah, feels weird to say anything about it now. I am talking, of course, about the slap. We pre-recorded last week's show, our fake show, so I wasn't able to weigh in on the slap right after it happened. And you know what? That was probably a good thing. The slap happened on Sunday night. We usually record the opening of the show on Monday morning. The show goes out first thing Tuesday. And it wasn't until mid-afternoon Tuesday that I learned, by reading Twitter, that white people needed to shut up and listen regarding the slap. For a while there, my Twitter feed was nothing but white people who wouldn't shut up about all the shutting up they were doing and all the shutting up that they thought other white people needed to start doing, which struck me as odd. Not telling white people to shut up, sometimes we definitely need to do just that. And this may have been one of those times. But if you won't shut up about all the shutting up you're doing and all the shutting up you think other people need to start doing, then have you shut up? Seems to me that the first step to shutting up about something is to shut up about it, to shut up by example. And I'm going to do just that. I'm going to do that now. I am going to shut up about all the shutting up other people weren't doing last week by shutting up myself. Basically, I'm going to stop playing three-dimensional shutting up chess now. And instead of talking about this lap, I'm going to talk about orgies in Washington, D.C. And the man, the GOP, would like to shut up about them. But one last thing, one last thing I wanted to say about the Oscars universe. If I could be reincarnated as Timothy Chalamet's tuxedo jacket or his pants, I'd settle for being his pants too. That would be great. All right. Zooming out for a second. I looked into organized swinging, big straight orgies for a chapter in a book I wrote 25 years ago. This was before the apps came along and turned every gay man's apartment into a bathhouse and every straight person's apartment into a swingers club. And here's what I found at big swingers events, at swingers conventions, at these giant orgies in Las Vegas. Republicans, a lot of Republicans, way more Republicans than Democrats. And this squared with lore about how organized swinging got started which wasn't by pointy-headed intellectual types in Connecticut having key parties as shown in The Ice Storm, a 1997 film by Ang Lee starring Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Costner and Joan Allen and Christina Ricci and Tobey Maguire. I rewatched it recently. It holds up. Wives are swapped. Lives are ruined. Watch it with your polycule. No, the lore about swinging goes like this, and I'm going to quote here from opening up A Guide to Creating and Sustaining Open Relationships by author and frequent Lovecast guest Tristan Taramino. One theory is that swinging began among Air Force fighter pilots and their wives during World War II. Pilots moved their wives close to base, where a tight-knit community of pilots and wives formed. Because so many pilots died in combat, it was understood that surviving pilots would care for widows as they would their own wives. This practice supposedly continued through the Korean War. It may seem counterintuitive, that Republicans, conservatives, would be into swinging because, yeah, aren't they the family values party of no and don't? Don't say that word gay. Don't have that orgasm in the wrong place. Don't get that abortion. Don't suck that dick. Don't, don't, don't. 
So yeah, at first it seems weird that Republicans would say yes to orgies, to swinging or wife swapping as it was called back then. But you know what? Born out by research done by Dr. Justin Lay Miller, author of Tell Me What You Want, a book about people's sexual fantasies. Dr. Lay Miller, also a frequent guest on the Lovecast, found that conservatives and Republicans, men, were likelier to fantasize about sharing their wives than Democrats, and presumably sharing their mistresses, and it would seem sharing freshman members of their own caucus, which is a roundabout way of saying, I believe Madison Cawthorn. Madison Cawthorn is the odious piece of shit, and I'm sorry, to, it has to be said, the objectively hot, conventionally attractive piece of Republican shit, insurrectionist, wannabe fascist, and the, the rate we're going, he may not be a wannabe for much longer. He's a congressman who represents North Carolina's 11th Congressional District, and since I've just acknowledged that Cawthorn is hot, I'm gonna say it. Josh Hawley, good hair. And have you seen him in a tight t-shirt? Nice tits, Senator. Gay tits, awful everything else. Anyway, Cawthorn, gun nut, went on a gun nut podcast, the Warrior Poet Society, barf to that, and condemned the rampant corruption, hypocrisy, and licentiousness he'd found when he got to Washington, D.C. in 2020. His first stop, the January 6th rally, inciting an insurrection. He wasn't upset, though, about the licentiousness and hypocrisy found among Democrats. No. He was upset about the licentiousness and hypocrisy of his fellow Republicans. Let's play the tape. The sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington, remember the average age is probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to, like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get-together at one of our homes, you should come. And I'm like, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild. Needless to say, Madison Cawthorn doesn't look up to Maxine Waters or Patrick Leahy or Nancy Pelosi. The asshole says all Democrats are bastards, so if he's being invited to orgies by elected officials he looks up to, that little fascist piece of shit is being invited to orgies by Republicans. And I believe it. I believe him. I am on, when it comes to this issue and this issue alone, Team Madison. This may be the only thing Madison Cawthorn has said in the last two years that wasn't a lie. Screw as I say, not as I screw Republicans. They're nothing new. No one who lived through the 1990s will ever forget the Republican Party losing one House speaker after another during the impeachment of Bill Clinton for having an affair and lying about it. Because as it turned out, they'd all been having affairs and lying about them. The GOP ultimately had to settle on a guy for House Speaker Danny Hastert, who turned out to be a child rapist. Republicans, they don't think you should be having premarital sex or gay sex or getting abortions or able to have protected sex or interracial sex. Everyone needs to look up Griswold v. Connecticut and Loving v. Virginia. Those are the Supreme Court decisions conservatives have their hearts set on overturning right after they're done shredding Roe. Then it's on to Obergefell. They don't want you to be able to do any of those things I listed. But when it comes to their mistresses, oh, they'll pop for that abortion. When it comes to their rent boys, they will suck that dick. And when it comes to 
their sex parties, they will invite that hottie from North Carolina. I do not doubt it. I do not want to picture it. I'm not being ageist. I'm getting up there myself. I'm no gerontophobe. I'm not sure gerontophobe is a word. Gerontophile is a word. It means attracted to the elderly. If gerontophobe isn't a word, maybe it needs to be. Maybe it will be now. Anyway, I'm no gerontophobe. But I don't want to picture Chuck Grassley, of all people, to say nothing of Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz or Jim Jordan or Rick Scott or even Madison Cawthorn with his pretty blue eyes or Josh Hawley with his muscly gay man titties. I don't want to picture any of those assholes at an orgy. And I don't think any of those assholes deserve the ironically singular pleasure that can only be experienced during group sex. Two people chewing on your tits, one person sucking your dick, another person eating your ass. Don't want to picture that, Chuck Grassley. Don't want to picture that happening to Chuck Grassley. And you know what? These days, Chuck Grassley doesn't need to go to an orgy to experience that. He can have that on his own with an expensive new sex toy called Serious Kit. It's an industrial milking machine adapted to milk men. Organizing an orgy seems cheaper than getting a Serious Kit. Thing costs five grand. But then again... Winning a house seat these days, average race costs $2 million, so maybe a serious kid is a steal. Anyway, Republicans in Congress wanting it one way or every way for themselves and another way or no way for the rest of us, like I said, that's nothing new. They want to force us to live in a world they don't have to live in themselves. Government-funded health care for them, free market for you. Gun control. There was a mass shooting in Sacramento this week. Six dead, 12 wounded, barely made the news. Republicans in Congress and on the Supreme Court, they think people should be able to carry guns into your workplace, not theirs. Rubes with assault rifles should be able to walk into your restaurant, not the gallery of the U.S. Senate. Gun control where they work, active shooters where you work. So of course it's orgies and key bumps for them, and abstinence and war on drugs. For the rest of us. Madison Cawthorn has been told to shut up, to stop telling the truth about sex parties and drugs, and then get back to doing what he does best, lying, which he did yesterday when he blamed the media and the left for this orgy controversy he kicked off. Yeah, Madison, you said it and you meant it. And it's true. Madison believed though, that if the left would just shut up about it, it would go away. And today, former Republican House Rep Trey Gowdy, not a man of the left and a creepy-ass motherfucker no one wants to invite to an orgy or picture at an orgy, he, not the left, demanded Madison Cawthorn start naming names. To which I say, no, please don't. The mental images are distressing enough with generic Republican officials at an orgy in our heads. Keep the names to yourself, Madison. But otherwise, about those orgies, please don't shut up. Quickly, a Lovecast programming note. In a few weeks, I'm bringing in a special guest to talk about erectile dysfunction and that little blue pill and the history of it, Viagra. So if you have any questions about ED or the drugs that are now available to treat it, send them in now. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum Savage Lovecast, Justine Ang Fonti returns. She's an intersectional sex educator based in New York City who moonlights on Instagram as your friendly ghostwriter where she helps people say what they need to say. Justine is back to help a couple of my listeners say what they need to say. All that coming up on today's show. 
Hi, Dan. I am a cisgender, bisexual, kinky, submissive woman in my early 30s in a long-term age gap relationship with my dom, who is 20 years my senior. My boyfriend has been using ED meds for some time and has reached the point where the only way forward is a penile implant. His surgery is scheduled for next month, and he is having a very hard time coping. I know he's mourning the loss of what was and that he's grappling with his definitions of masculinity and virility, and it's brought to the fore his regrets with his former sexually incompatible marriage, which ended several years ago, as well as concerns for how his penis will look and function, fears of the surgery failing, etc. Especially as this is a one-way street and there is no going back. I don't fault him whatsoever for his feelings. It's quite the Rubicon. Um, my question to you is, how do I help him through this transition? Assuring that I don't and won't find him any less attractive or love him any less. I have equated the surgery with having a heart valve replacement or some other similar vascular issue. It is a medical issue in my book. I'd also be eager to hear any feedback you may have for him on the efficacy of penile implants or outcomes, things to be aware of going forward. Obviously, we're into some pretty freaky shit and have a very active sex life, so, you know, any limitations would be lovely to address. I'm not a doctor. Efficacy, outcomes, things to be aware of going forward, function, these are all issues that I hope your partner has addressed with his physician and maybe spent a little time on Dr. Google reading about. The issue for you, though, is nothing that you've said has made him feel any better. And I don't think that anything you can say right now is going to have that outcome. I don't think you can achieve making him feel better about this. He's nervous in advance of getting this surgery. And, you know, so there's always a risk in surgery. Sometimes you don't get the outcome that you hoped for. There could be a complication. He's putting a lot on the plate. There's a lot at risk here. There's his dick at risk here. And he's going to be anxious and nervous about that, whatever you say to him, until he's on the other side of that surgery and he has a good outcome. Hopefully he will have a good outcome. I wouldn't advise you to engage in any worst case scenario disorder theorizing about you know what you guys will do or what he'll do or what approach you'll take to sex or intercourse, not sex. There's plenty of sex you can have. Without a hard dick, you say that he's your dom. I assume then that you guys engage in some sort of DS or BDSM, and there's a lot on the table in DS or BDSM that doesn't necessarily involve penetrative sex. There's a lot of people into BDSM who don't even have penetrative sex at all. So there's a lot that I'm sure that you're already doing that you can continue to do and successfully do with or without his penis or while his penis is recuperating. But I think your frustration is that you haven't hit on the magic words that you can say right now that'll make him feel better, that will relieve him of this anxiety. And you know what? Those magic words don't exist. You're just going to have to listen to him, offer the reassurances that you can, encourage him to talk to his physician about uh, the efficacy of this, outcomes, things to be aware of going forward, and let him vent. And then all the reassuring things that you've said 
they're going to be in his head when he's getting down to the other side and he will be grateful to you. But I think you're doing that thing that sometimes we do when we're in a relationship where we just, we see our partner miserable and happy, anxious about something, anything. And we feel like it's our job to say the right thing, do the right thing that takes all the anxiety away. And that's not always possible. And you just have to kind of ride it out with them. Say the reassuring things, allow him to continue to be anxious and nervous about this. And then, you know, if you don't get the outcome you want, if it doesn't work the way he hoped it would or had been told it should or does for most men, then you can call me back about what to do now on the other side, uh, how you could change up or switch up your sex life, how you can de-emphasize uh, penetrative sex if he's not capable of penetrative sex. But let's hope for a good outcome. And let's hope that he is capable still of penetrative intercourse after he gets this implant. Most men are. And what you don't want to do is to get into this anxious feedback loop where your partner's anxious and you're anxious to reassure your partner and it's not whatever you're saying isn't reassuring them and then you get anxious about your inability to cure their anxieties and it just becomes this self-reinforcing anxiety feedback loop. You have to offer what reassurances you can, know that they may not work very well right now and then be zen about the fact that your partner is still anxious and rightfully so. Who wouldn't be anxious about getting their dick cut open. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old female, and I really need your help with some disturbing behavior. I've been with my partner for about four years. Before we started dating, we had a casual friends with benefits situation. I just found out from a mutual friend that during this time, prior to us dating, he engaged in some really concerning behavior. One evening, he thought I was lying to him about my solo plans for the evening, which involved ordering takeout. So he called every Chinese food place that delivers to my address and had them confirm the order, which he noted included food in the order that he knows I wouldn't have eaten myself. I confronted him about this behavior, and he did confess that it was true, but that he was disgusted by his own actions and would never do anything like that again. I made it clear to him that if I had known this had happened at the time, there's no chance he would still be in my life. My question is, do you really think that this is the kind of behavior that someone can get past and grow from? Or do you think this remains a huge red flag of a controlling and potentially unhinged person? I will say that over the last four years of our relationship, it has been overall a very positive experience with mutual respect, and he has been a very loving partner. But do I throw in the towel because of this very creepy and disturbing behavior that happened four years ago? Do people really change? Aren't you glad you didn't find out about it at the time when it happened? Because then you wouldn't have had this wonderful relationship of the last four years with your former fuck buddy. Yeah, what he did at that moment was fucked up as he seems to be aware. And had it resulted in you refusing to date him, it would have been very regrettable. What I'm kind of bumping on listening to your question is there's no pattern here. He did this one fucked up thing one time regretted it, never did it again. You've enjoyed four years with him. If this was telling, you know, if this was a red flag and the red army was behind it, you know, a million red flags, uh, he would have, it, it would have revealed itself by now. There would have been a pattern of manipulative controlling behavior. There is no pattern here of manipulative controlling behavior. What there's evidence of was a lapse of judgment on his part that one time. And 
it sounds like perhaps he discussed it in therapy or maybe he just rooted it out on his own. And yeah, if you'd known at the time, you wouldn't have dated him. You didn't find out at the time. And my question for you is, are you happy or sad about that? Are you bummed that you didn't find out so that you could have not entered into this relationship, which sounds like has been a good and rewarding one over the last four years? I guess this boils down to, can we ever forgive anybody for anything? If we find something out four years, eight years, 12 years, 16, 20 years into a relationship about our partner that would have given us second thoughts about dating them, and this thing had happened before we started dating them, can we retroactively forgive this thing that we didn't know about that might have altered our judgment or feelings about this person had we known? And I think the answer to that has to be, Yes, we are all capable of shitty actions. And if we're held to a standard of if you've ever done this one shitty thing that's common to a particular kind of shitty person who routinely engages in shitty things, you're not fit to date and can't be forgiven. Well, then who amongst us is fit to date? Hey, Dan. I am a 32-year-old cisgender woman from the Midwest. Me and my husband are just getting into group play and we're taking every precaution, getting tested, talking about testing with others, using protection in these scenarios. And we just found out we're pregnant, which is so exciting and so amazing because we've been trying for a while. And we're kind of looking at this like maybe it's the last big hurrah before we move into kind of infant caring life. And I'm wondering what, like, do I have to disclose this to other people at this stage? You know, we're very, very early on. We're talking like, you know, under five weeks kind of territory. And I'm just wondering if you could advise on whether I have to disclose this, why I should disclose this. I'm sure there are risks involved, but, you know, I feel like that's kind of up to me to make, not others. So I'm curious what you say. I think I'm going to get in trouble, or I did get in trouble once for describing pregnancy as the original sexually transmitted infection, which isn't true. I was just being an asshole. It's not an STI. You do not have to disclose this. And at five weeks, most uh, women who believe themselves to be pregnant, hope they're pregnant, and it's a wanted pregnancy, don't disclose that fact generally. And I don't think you're under any obligation to disclose this fact about yourself, that you're pregnant, to a casual sex partner who has no guarantee that the women they're sleeping with are not pregnant, never pregnant, couldn't be pregnant. That's a possibility. So yeah, but yeah, uh, I guess when I think about it, what I would want if I was your sex partner, would I want this disclosed to me? Well, if you had a sexually transmitted infection, I would I would want that disclosed to me. If I was looking for love and you were in a committed relationship and only looking for something casual, I would want that disclosed to me. You know, if some guy I was sleeping with was pregnant, would I want that disclosed to me? Would I feel wronged if that wasn't disclosed to me in a hypothetical universe where gay cis men can be pregnant? Forgive my hypothetical, and I guess it's telling that my hypothetical involves the existence of pregnant gay cis men, and to me that seems more plausible than me having sex with a woman, but let's just go with it. No, I would like, though, to feel that the person that I was sleeping with would feel free to disclose that to me when they were ready without me freaking out or getting judgy or weird about it because they 
knew me to be a person who wouldn't freak out or get judgy or weird about that. So the only complication I could see for you down the road is you might wait to disclose this to a partner who then looks at how long it took you to disclose it to them if you have regular play partners and worries that you felt that you couldn't trust them. But if you disclose this to someone and they freak out because they felt that they had a right to know or they're goobed out because you happen to be pregnant while you were having casual sex, which is a thing that can happen if you're a person who has casual sex with a female human being, well, then they're not anybody you wanted to fuck ever again anyway, and so good riddance. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old gay man, a second-time caller. I called back late last year about my bottom boyfriend uh, not really wanting to have sex and kind of being on the rocks. Uh, we considered moving in together. Well, we broke up on Halloween, and I was pretty devastated. It took me a couple weeks, a couple months to kind of uh, move on and really get my head back on my shoulders. But my current predicament is we still share uh, a few passwords and logins with each other, uh, one of which is Amazon Prime. I quit using his for the most part. I logged out or I switched accounts pretty pretty quickly after our breakup, and I logged him out of my Netflix account. However, curiosity got the best of me last night. I got into his Amazon Prime account, and I noticed, and I looked at his orders, and I noticed that he had ordered a douche for himself. Um, I think the last time I called you, I was talking about how I didn't feel like he wanted to bottom for me, and I was always sort of insecure about him wanting bigger dicks. That was a that was also a big point of contention after our breakup. He'd found some stuff I said on Sniffy's uh, referring to wanting a big cock. And he was pretty upset by that. So I think we've always had some general insecurities about our sex life, our dick sizes, and uh, the needs of our former partners. So I don't know if this is just a case of self-sabotage, and I'm not really sure how to fix it. I don't know if you have any remedies aside from obviously logging out of his account, which I have, and just continuing to try to move on. I've been good about setting boundaries. I've been good about not getting emotional, not getting intoxicated and blowing up on him. However, he has not done the same for me. So I feel pretty confident recently. However, this kind of threw me for a loop and I feel like, uh, you know, just feeling a little sad today, feeling like I shouldn't have done that. I knew I shouldn't have done that. But um, I'm wondering how you, what you have to say about people who self-sabotage and kind of how to respond to this. I know that he is a bottom, but I've always been sort of insecure about my partners being bottoms because it's the vulnerable position. You don't know anything now that you didn't know before you went and snooped. And this is the danger of snooping. I'm one of the rare pro snooping sex and relationship advice, industrial complex worker bees in that I do think sometimes you find something out when you're snooping that you needed to know and had a right to know. The warning label on that, though, that piece of advice is that sometimes you find shit out snooping that you didn't need to know and can't unknow. And this falls into that latter category. However, you didn't really find out anything about your ex-boyfriend that you didn't already know about your ex-boyfriend. He's a bottom. He likes to have his ass fucked. One of the reasons your relationship ended was he didn't particularly want to have his ass fucked by you. You have insecurities about the size of your dick. Maybe he couldn't be 
bothered to let you fuck his ass or to douche himself for you to fuck his ass because your dick is too small. You can cling to that. You can abuse yourself with that. You can inflame your own insecurities by lashing yourself with that. Or you can shrug it the fuck off and just say, for whatever reason, that wasn't working for us. Like we didn't click around anal. I have a perfectly decent and good dick. Some guys prefer giant dicks and can only be bothered to douche or clean out or have anal for a giant dick. If that was the case with your ex, well then the relationship was never going to work out. And what you need to do is go find a guy who digs your dick at the size your dick is and have anal sex with that guy and stop thinking about what your ex-boyfriend is doing with his butt. Or you can tell yourself, maybe the douche bulb is for his new boyfriend. Maybe he's a top now. Maybe it's a gag gift for a bachelor party. Maybe he got it for his sister. Who the fuck knows? All we know for sure is that you can't unknow this thing that you didn't need to know that you went and found out good for you. I, I don't want to sound like I'm too angry at you. I'm not angry at you. I totally get it. People snoop. Uh, people have insecurities. Sometimes you find something that like feeds into your insecurities. And then what do you do with that? Well, you eat a weed gummy. You talk about it with your therapist. You create an alternate explanation that's not about your inadequacy. And I promise you, I'm sure you've had sex with other guys before and since you broke up with your ex who didn't find you inadequate at all. And you need to take all of those yeses that you've gotten from other guys about your dick for an answer and stop obsessing about your ex-boyfriend and his butt and your dick. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 33-year-old woman in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have a crush on a guy at work. He and I work in the same department, about 300 people, but in different divisions. We've never met in person, and our work schedules don't naturally overlap. But we have interacted when I've reached out to ask him to tutor me on this company's software that he's an expert in, and all of that's been over video conference. So I'll add it up about two or three hours of interaction, which is not enough to know a person, but has been enough for me to get a vibe on him, uh, which is a good vibe. He seems like a really good guy. And he came up on my dating app tonight. So I got a lot of logistical information about him and all of that was really aligned. So <laughs> now I have confirmation that he's single and I like him more than I did before. So my question is, do I ask him out? And if so, how do I be clear while minimizing awkwardness? I'm worried about asking him out and him saying no and that being awkward. I'm worried about asking him out and him saying yes and it not working out and that being awkward at work. And I'm worried about not asking him out and then just living with that regret. So all of these are worries and I would appreciate any magic words, but also framing you could give me to approach this situation. You left one kind of awkwardness off your list of potentially awkward situations in the future, if you should reach out to this guy, which is you hit it off and you wind up in a relationship. And that's awkward, perhaps, for some other people at work, but fuck them. No, the way it could be awkward for you is relationships have their ups and downs and stresses and tensions. And there will be times, even if you wind up with this person, for a while or for the rest of your life, whether it's a successful short-term relationship or a successful 
long-term relationship where there will be moments that feel extremely tense or awkward. So even in the best case scenario, there's going to be awkwardness. So I feel like you should go ahead and risk it since any way you turn north, south, east, or west, there's awkwardness. If he's popping up on your dating app, just swipe left or right on him or whatever fucking dating app you're on, respond to him, ping him, and then you guys can have a conversation. You're not his boss. He's not your boss. You're not over or under each other at work. So I don't see any reason why two people who met at work can't get over and under each other at home. It'll help if you say to him, look, if we're going to go out on a date, because I'm kind of into you and you're single and you know, if you verify that he's into you too, if we're going to go out on a date and then things don't pan out, okay, that's going to be awkward, but let's both resolve before that first date that if things don't work out and there's some awkwardness, we'll be adults. We'll rise above it. We will be civil and polite. That doesn't guarantee that he'll be all those things or you'll be all those things if things go south, but I think it makes it far more likely. If you've set that bar for people to clear it if a relationship doesn't work out in the context where two people are going to be thrown together again and again, uh, you know, in a work setting or a volunteer setting or whatever, school, and it doesn't work out. But it could work out. And then if it does work out, yay, you'll be dating and fucking this guy that you kind of like at work. And then, yeah, there'll still be moments where it's awkward. Human life is lots of awkward moments and occasional orgasms and then a visit to the funeral home. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. This is a mid-40s woman, cis, straight, calling from the East Coast with a question about infidelity. I have been having an affair with a married man for six years. I was married also when we first started dating each other, and um, we have been very in love for all of this time. We have tried to break up several times, but we always find ourselves back together. My marriage ended amicably, and I really enjoy being free and out in the world and living as honest a life as possible. His children are very young, and he feels like though he wants to be together, he just can't see a path where his kids wouldn't get hurt, and he's terrified that his wife would be really cruel and vindictive and make things very hard for everybody. So he's stays in this holding pattern that has become very frustrating for me. I understand it's currently the price of admission. I have tried to, we have tried to split up uh, on a few occasions and we always find ourselves back together. He told his wife right before COVID that he wanted a divorce and she said they needed to do therapy first and he shouldn't leave them. So he agreed to do therapy, but then the lockdown happened. They had trouble finding a therapist. She's never really been interested in therapy. So after one visit, she refused to go anymore. And so now we find ourselves in a holding pattern where um, we see each other a few times a week, if we can, depending on who has a cold and what sort of COVID restrictions are going on. But I find myself increasingly wondering if she were to find out whether that blow up, which he insists would happen and um, he's very afraid of, would actually be a good thing. And then we could, you know, get through it and move on. There is always a risk that he would be found out anyway. And that risk is a, a, 
a tension and I'm worried about happening also. And I feel like I'm just wondering, is there a way to send a letter to her, to have someone else tell her, I know that I can't do it or I shouldn't do it. It would be um, a betrayal of him. And I guess maybe even this call is kind of a betrayal, but sometimes I just think he's too scared to do the right thing and just fess up to what's happening. It's been happening. It's continuing to happen. And he's like too afraid to let the truth come out, but maybe it should. What do you think? So your question basically boils down to it would be unethical. It would be a betrayal for me to stab you in the face. So my friend here, she's going to stab you in the face. Yeah, it would be wrong for you to send this letter. It would be a betrayal that would destroy the relationship you presumably want to have with this man in the future. He would feel violated in, so completely that he wouldn't want to be with you. So telling the wife yourself or sending that letter or getting a friend to tell her or send that letter – isn't going to get you what it is that you want. And perhaps after six years deserve, how old are these kids? You say he can't leave his wife because his kids are so young, but you've been in this relationship for six years. Presumably the kids were already, they already were kids. They already had the kids before this relationship began. Otherwise he could have left his wife without having to worry about the kids. So the kids now must be at least what? Eight and 10, 10 and 12, which means you may be closer to your desired outcome here, which is him getting to a point where he feels like he can wind down his marriage than you realize. But your only leverage in this relationship, as in so many relationships for so many people, is your presence. That's the only lever you can push or pull or flip or whatever that may cause him to make a different choice or inspire him to leave his wife without him then wanting to leave you too. If your fingerprints are all over his wife finding out and his family being blown up and his kids being traumatized and him being outed to all of his relatives as the bad guy here because he was the cheater and we don't know the particulars of their relationship or why he's fucking you. Maybe you're what he needs to do to, in order to stay married and stay sane. And, you know, as Esther Perel says, the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. It could be that he's not the bad guy in this relationship despite this six-year affair. But if he's outed as a cheater, he will be seen as a bad guy by all his relatives, by all of her relatives, by his own kids. So you won't be just setting fire to his relationship with his wife if you out him as an adulterer. You will be setting fire to all of his relationships, including his relationship with you. So don't fucking do it. Use the leverage that you have, which is your presence. Tell him it's over. Don't get back together with him until he is single and can date you as a single person and you two can have the relationship that you'd like to have with this guy in the future, which you will not have in the future or ever if you send that letter or get somebody else to send that letter. Hi, Dan. 30-something cis male bisexual from the Midwest. My wife and I have been recently exploring non-monogamy. I think we're doing it for the right reasons and in terms of our relationship, it's felt really good. We both kind of were not sure how to 
seal the deal with short-term sexual interactions when we were younger. We both just didn't have the confidence or didn't feel like we were that type of person for stupid reasons. And so it's something that we both talked about, that we there were people interested in us and we were interested in other people and we just didn't do it when we were younger. And, and so we still have a very good sexual relationship and feel really good about it. But we're also trying dating other people. Um, and we both had some success, but the person I had the most success with was this woman a little bit younger than me, just just at 30. Really great, really had a good connection, both in terms of what we're, we like to talk about, sense of humor. Um, she's a mom, too. She's dealt with some stuff, but it, and I've dealt with some stuff in my life, and we can really talk about that, but still have fun together. And yeah, just like electric sense of touch, like good, like, like kissing each other, like touching each other. But she had a policy of no sex the first date. And I respected that. And I think that made a lot of sense. And we had arranged to meet again, um, just this Monday. Um, it's Wednesday now. And we were gonna, going to have sex. But then on Saturday, she disclosed to me that she has herpes simplex one, which is usually on the mouth, but for her, it's genital infection. And because I'm in this non-monogamous relationship, I it really threw me because I know all the the facts about it. Like if we use protection, if she's and she's managing it well, it's like it's pretty low chance that I would get it. But you know, um, then I have to worry about my wife getting it. And the big thing for me is like having the idea of having to disclose to any other partners that one of my other partners is positive. It just feels feels like I'm like we're just getting started in this and we'll be shooting it in the foot but at the same time she's just really great and I don't want to be one of those people that contributes to stigma I don't want to be one of those people who judge I, I have no judgment on her as a person it's entirely what this would like the effects this would have on me so um, I also kind of have a hypochondriac streak so I just wanted to get your feelings on this it's really breaking me up um, I really want to continue with her what should I do Stigma schmigma, let's set judgment aside and talk about numbers and odds. You and your wife are in your 30s. You've opened your relationship. You're not seeking, from the sound of things, one other partner outside the relationship. You keep using plurals that you and your wife are seeking multiple partners. And you're afraid that if you were to sleep with this woman, who I assume is taking meds that suppress the herpes virus in her system, and you would be using condoms with her. You're afraid that you would then technically have exposed yourself or risked exposure to herpes, and then you would have to disclose that risk to all your other partners, plural, partners to come, concurrent partners, multiple partners. And I'm here from the future or from reality land or long-term open land to tell you that When it comes to herpes, and maybe you should jump back and look up the episodes of the Savage Lovecast with Dr. Ina Park, where we talk about herpes and risk factors and the odds and risks of getting it. Yeah, if you're going to have multiple partners and your wife is going to have multiple partners, the chances that you will be sleeping with someone who has herpes and doesn't know it because they had one outbreak that they barely noticed or they had one and didn't know exactly what it was and have never had another one, or they're one of the asymptomatic carriers of herpes who never had an outbreak but was exposed to the virus and can transmit the virus, your odds of winding up in bed with someone who has it and doesn't know 
so doesn't disclose, or you wind up in bed with someone who has it and doesn't disclose because of the stigma, are about 100%. So you're just going to have to be a little bit more zen about this. A closed relationship where nobody cheats, and that's not true of all closed relationships, but a closed relationship where nobody cheats is your lowest risk relationship uh, when it comes to STIs. An open relationship can also be low risk for STIs, not as low risk as a sexually exclusive closed relationship with someone who didn't arrive at that relationship with any STIs. An open relationship can be low risk, but there's going to be some risk. And you have to be a grown-up about that trade-off, which you're trading for a more interesting, varied sex life, which you're trading, one of the things you're trading for that sex life that you would like to have is an increase in the potential risk of acquiring a sexually transmitted infection. Using condoms, great way to protect yourself from syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. If you are, you say that you're a bi guy, if you're going to have sex with other men, please get on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a great way to prevent yourself from acquiring HIV from a potential future partner. But when it comes to herpes and when it comes to HPV, which are very easily transmitted through skin-to-skin -skin contact, you can use condoms. Your partner, if they know they have herpes and they're on one of the antiviral drugs for herpes, much less infectious potentially, but there's going to be some risk there. And if you can't handle the risk, you can't handle the existential dread of sleeping with somebody who knows they have herpes and is doing something about it and disclosing it. Well, how do you handle the existential risk of knowing that if you have many, many other partners, at least one of them, if not more of them, have it and don't know it or have it and aren't disclosing it to you? The woman that disclosed it to you presents less of a risk to you when it comes to herpes than the woman or man who doesn't know and didn't disclose. And you will definitely be sleeping with those men and women too. So, herpes. I don't want to say it's never a big deal in the lives of some people. Also, HPV in the lives of some people. A very big deal. Some people have terrible outbreaks and a terrible time. Most people don't. That's why there are so many people rattling around with herpes who don't know they have it. But... Sorry, there's no way to eliminate the risk for acquiring or being exposed to the herpes virus, genital or oral, unless you were in a sexually exclusive relationship with someone who didn't arrive at the relationship with it and it's successfully sexually exclusive over the decades, or you don't have sex with other human beings because it's just really common and really easily transmitted and my heart goes out to the people out there where herpes has been a big deal in your life, but for most people, not a big deal. Hi, Dan. 33-year-old uh, cis male, queer, um, in a heterosexual relationship, which is currently monogamous, although that's uh, part of the reason why I am calling and looking for advice. So my relationship with my partner has been based on non-monogamy and polyamory the entire time we've done it. When we met, we were both married to other people and open with them. You know, the, the four of us, her, her and her husband and me and my wife, we were all, you know, we'd meet together, we would swap, we would do 
non-monogamous sex positive things with each other. Um, but now she is no longer with her husband and I am no longer with my wife and me and her, my, me and my partner are expecting a child in the next three months. Even though I identify as a polyamorous person, I am not being polyamorous with my partner because it upsets her a lot. And since she's pregnant, our goals are not just to make our relationship work and make ourselves happy, but to also look out for the well-being and health of our, our developing child. I have stopped polyamory because my partner has a lot of trouble dealing with it. So essentially, we, we live together right now. A couple weeks ago, I dated uh, this one woman. We went out. I think we met four times. We had sex uh, maybe twice on one date and the three other dates we met out in public. And I liked her a lot. It was it was great. Um, she, the person I was dating, did not identify as polyamorous, but she was very much only looking for like a friends with benefits situation, more like a relationship anarchy type situation, where um, she, you know she would see someone once a week or once every two weeks, and that's exactly what I was looking for as well, um, because I need to have, to have needed to have a lot of time to dedicate to my partner who is pregnant, you know, helping her around the house and you know massages and spending time and developing our relationship and, and planning for the future. But every time I would go out with this woman, my partner would sort of have like a, an emotional breakdown. Uh, she has a very anxious attachment style. She gets feelings of insecurity, sort of goes into like negative thought spirals and breaks down crying and is inconsolable essentially. And so I stopped. I said, I'm going to stop seeing this woman because I, I don't want you to be going through this physiological stress, especially since that's affecting the development of our child. You know, um, if it was a different situation, I would say this is something we need to work on because I am not going to live in a monogamous relationship. That was never the expectation. That was not how we met. That was not the conditions under which we, you know, set our relationship up. Um, and so I'm not okay with that changing. So normally that's what I would do, but um, right now is not a good time for that. I think I need to prioritize her her well-being while she's pregnant. But that being said, I stopped dating that woman. I still text her as a friend, and I'm, again, very honest with my partner about all this. She knows um, everything, and, and for goodness sakes, I saw this woman four times in the span of four or five weeks, and it hasn't helped. She's still convinced that I am going to leave her for this other woman that I'm going to, I don't know, fall in love with her and, you know, move away from the country. And, and then it compounds and says, and she starts thinking that she made a huge mistake and she shouldn't be with me. And, you know, she's incompatible, we're incompatible and we're never, our relationship is never going to work. So I don't know, I don't know what to do because being polyamorous didn't work. Breaking up with her and being monogamous is not working. It feels like she's self-sabotaging herself or, or our relationship. I don't know what to do. She has told me I should just get back together with the other woman because it'll make me happier. And um, that's the only way I'll have a good relationship with her. It just seems like there's no answer and no way out. I think you shouldn't be having a baby together. I think you aren't suited. I don't think you're a match. I don't know what was going on for your girlfriend back when she was married to the man she was married to when you and the woman you were married to first met them as a couple and swapped. But my hunch is that she was never that into openness or non-monogamy 
or polyamory. I suspect she might have been a pud, poly under duress. That this was something she was doing back when you first met her, not for herself, but for her then husband. I assume you and she have talked about whatever the fuck was going on when you all met and you were married to other people. So maybe you know things that I don't. Maybe my hunch is incorrect. And if so, I'm going to defer to you. But yeah, my God, what a fucking mess. You are 100% a poly person, but here you are two weeks, just two weeks into being monogamous out of consideration for your currently pregnant partner's feelings. You say you're being monogamous now for her because she's pregnant. And then you say a couple of weeks ago, you started dating and fucking someone else. So you are exactly 14 days and change, however long it took for me to hear your question, respond to it and get it on the show into doing monogamy out of consideration for your currently pregnant and perhaps hormonal partners feelings. And you are cracking under the strain of two weeks of sexual exclusivity, two weeks of having to kick the can of fucking other people, relationship anarchy down the road. Yeah, you aren't cut out for monogamy, which means the person you're with now, the person you have already scrambled your DNA together with, yeah, isn't a good partner for you. And yet here you are, here you are, you are partnered with this woman. You are making a baby with this woman. I think you need to suck it up at least until the baby is born and at least until six, 12 months after that, and then revisit the conversation about how you're going to structure your relationship. Maybe your pregnant partner, three, four months away from giving birth, is feeling vulnerable right now and needs the reassurance of being 100% of your focus. I think that's completely understandable for somebody who is pregnant. And pregnant, I'm going to guess, by mutual decision that the two of you either decided to make a baby or the two of you decided after she got pregnant to keep that baby. So I'm sorry, you're just going to have to over up here. You're going to have to take some responsibility for the choices that you've made. And you're going to have to prioritize your currently pregnant partner, her feelings and this baby over your desire over your need, if you're a polyamorous person, to fuck around and have other partners. You're young. You're 33 years old. There's plenty of time for you to fuck around and have other partners, to have your committed partner and the family you're making with her and your anarchist relationship style too, or relationship anarchy too, or polyamory too. But now is not the moment. And I think, yeah, I think you're being a little impatient and I think you're being a little selfish. Again, I'm a little shocked that you called in such duress when the monogamous shit has been going on for you for only two weeks. Yeah. I think you need to accept that the monogamous shit, the sexual exclusivity, the hundred percent focus on your partner is going to need to go on and should go on for at least a year, at least until your partner has recovered from giving birth, at least until that absolutely mind-numbing exhaustion of the first year that is having a new baby at home is behind you. And then you can revisit a conversation, not about whether to open the relationship. Clearly that is 
something you require. And she knew that when she got involved with you, but when and how to reopen this relationship. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman living in New York City, and I have a question for you about dating app etiquette. So I'm on Field, which I heard about on your show and have had a lot of great experiences with. And I recently matched with a guy. We started chatting and it was going well. He asked me out and I agreed. So the problem is that on field, to be more discreet, it's normal that people often have fewer pictures, especially of their face. So this guy had one picture of himself wearing a sort of like costume type mask and then a couple of his body. And I thought he looked cute from those. But after I agreed to the date, I asked him to send me a picture of his face so that I could recognize him. And he just looked different than what I expected. And I didn't feel like I was attracted to him anymore. So I don't want to be a huge asshole and cancel our date right after he sent me these pictures or make him feel like it was because of his face. But I also don't want to go on the date with him. How do I get out of this while being a kind person, Dan? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Justine Ang Fonte returns to the Savage Lovecast. You may remember her from episode 798. She's an intersectional sex educator based in New York City and the genius behind Good Buys on Instagram. She is your friendly ghostwriter. She helps people put into words something that feels hard or challenging to say, but that someone else needs to hear. Hey, Justine, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Good to be back, Dan. So this is a really common problem. You're DMing with somebody on a dating app. You've seen a, maybe a photo or maybe you haven't even seen a photo. You finally get to the swapping of current, detailed, full photographs. And you're like, yeah, no. What do you say at that moment? This is a tough one because, I mean, we have people we're attracted to and we have people we're not attracted to. And when you tell someone directly, it's because of their um, look that is extremely hurtful and hard to, to take in. So I imagine that this is something many people have gone through. But I think as a result of it being so sensitive, it is best to be short with your response and clear about it being something as vague as you're just not my type and then ending it. If they want to conclude it's because of what they look like, then that's on them. If they want to conclude it's because of something may they may have said, that's on them too. But I think ghosting away from it or trying to make something up or deflecting into, you know, something else and lying altogether is also not helpful. And so I think being honest, but something that might sound like, you know, it's been nice getting to know each other on the app, but you're not my type. Thanks for taking an interest in me, in me and giving it a shot. Yeah. And it's a good idea not to deflect. A lot of people will deflect because they think that's going to spare the other person's feelings. Mm -hmm. And what that often does is it leaves the other person with hope when they shouldn't have hope. Yes. And you say like, right now I'm super busy. That person's going to keep circling back to you, mm -hmm. hoping that you're not super busy in a couple of weeks or a month. And you're just delaying the inevitable rejection. Exactly. Exactly. Where do you, where do you come down on the little white lies that people tell you? I'm always telling people that when someone says it's not you, it's me, it's you. When someone says I'm too busy right now for a relationship, you have to hear the with you. Uh, you know, I have too much work, too much schoolwork. They're just not 
into you and they want to give you a face-saving way out. But people don't want to hear that. You know, most people hear that and know what that means. But a lot of people hear that and they don't want to know what it means. They don't want to recognize what it means. And then they feel lied to or manipulated as opposed to seeing that as someone's perhaps misplaced effort to spare your feelings. And there's a Mm -hmm. kind of, there's a courtesy in that, a consideration for your feelings in that. And you shouldn't feel betrayed by that, but you gotta like, you gotta read the tea leaves. Yeah. I think the only reason that you should do a white lie is if you feel your safety is at risk because this person is so persistent or won't take a specific answer and you're really trying to get out of it. But most of the times, I think people um, just are afraid of rejection without realizing that this is where growth occurs. And if you are able to, because it's in a safe place, to be able to be honest and really say, look, here's the situation. Here's where we don't align. Here's what made me feel uncomfortable. Um, Here's why I don't think we have enough chemistry. Then be honest about it because that's going to be helpful to the other person. And if anything, the more compassionate thing to do is giving that person transparency. And not wasting that person's time or allowing them to live in false hope. Right. Uh, I've been, you know, I got a long email confronting me about one of my standard bits of advice for people, which is you should welcome rejection. Rejection's your friend. If somebody is clear that they're not into you, that, you know, makes it possible for you to get out there and find somebody who is and not waste your time investing in someone who isn't. And someone wrote to me to say, easy for you to say, Dan, you're conventionally attractive. That was nice to hear. I don't feel so conventionally attractive these days much, but okay. And so you don't encounter rejection as often as others might. And for someone who's rejected a lot because of their looks, rejection ends up not feeling like your friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I understand that. Um, And there's definitely a privilege to how people receive rejection or not, or even if they receive rejection. I also think that if this person who feels like they're not attractive and, you know, can't take um, rejection is then trying to avoid experiencing it, what they're really doing is being with someone who genuinely doesn't want to be with them or sees them only as a superficial being. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're getting extra information if this person is being truthful about the fact that the way you look isn't something that um, works for them. And then we know that their value is based on looks. And is that someone you want to keep dating just because you look a certain way? Oh, so, yeah. I think there's just more truth still. Like you're almost getting this additional filter when this person is rejecting you because of what you look like. You know that that person is valuing you for only that or devaluing you only for that. And that tells you enough about their character. And conversely, I sometimes hear from people who realize that they are not their partner's ideal type, not the person that their partner Mm. looks for in porn, not the kind of person their partner you know, uh, follows for eye candy on Instagram. And there seems to be two conflicting messages that the culture sends people, which is you should not just look at how someone looks that, and sometimes desire transcends looks. And that's a, a good thing, you know, that you love the person on the inside so much that who they are on the outside becomes attractive to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet people then freak out when they realize that the person they're with that their desire for them transcends their looks because a lot of people don't want their looks to be transcended. And those things seem to be in conflict. 
Like it says something wonderful about a person if they're not so shallow that looks are the only thing that matters. And yet if you're with somebody who clearly you're not their physical type, their typical physical type or their ideal physical type, you're being wrong somehow. Mm -hmm. I think people are too rigid about certain boxes or binaries in that, you know, they have a certain look that their partner is into and that's the only look that they'll ever be into. We are complex human beings who are going to have desires that fall on a spectrum and Mm -hmm. that look different and can change and be fluid. And I think we need to appreciate that your partner loves you for the way you are and also can be attracted to other types of people and looks too. That doesn't discount how they feel about you or give you maybe more value or anything. But I think people are just too, um, they like to keep these boxes on like, this is what you're into and this is what you're always into. Or they're, they're, people's insecurities are constantly on the lookout for something yeah. to feed on. Yeah. And it's sometimes not enough just to hear from someone like me or to remind yourself that your partner is into you too. Your partner yes. may be into the people they're following on Instagram for the eye candy, but they're into you too. And the proof is the way your partner treats you. The proof is the way your partner interacts with you erotically yeah. or sexually when they're with you. And yet people will give more meaning to who their partner mindlessly follows on Instagram right. than to how their partner treats them. Right. And that partner has chosen you every day or, you know, whatever the relationship arrangement is. Um, and and that should be the thing that actually ma- matters the most. Okay. Can we keep you on for one more question? I have another Please. one. Hey, Dan. Just thought I was a hetero female on the West Coast. I took a long break from the dating game because I had some not great experiences with some cis dudes and I pretty much didn't. I've um, had sex for four years, and then the other day, I broke that dry spell with someone who came on me and then didn't text me again. And since then, I'm not, like, heartbroken or anything, but I'm just swiping. And I landed on uh, – I matched with a trans person on Bumble, and at first, I was like, okay, no, I shouldn't do this because I'm not attracted to trans men, but the truth is I don't really know if I am, I, I've never been with a trans person before and I don't know how to go about letting people know this, letting people know that I don't really know whether, what that part of my sexuality is and that it, maybe it would turn out great and maybe it wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't be attracted to them in that way, but I just don't really know how to explore this. Do I put it on my profile? Do I say it in the message? Do I say it when I meet them? How do I do this kindly in a way that doesn't like, you know, further traumatize someone who already might have trauma with like body or gender dysphoria? All right. So person is obviously open to possibly dating trans people, doesn't know if that's ultimately going to work for them. They've never been with a trans person, but they're open to it. How do you say that without being offensive? When I first heard this uh, call, the first thing that came to mind was, what does it mean that you're not attracted to trans men? And I think about this even outside of that question, like, what does it mean that you're not attracted to women? You're not attracted to men? Um, Because what we're what we need to interrogate are, you know, things around masculinity and femininity. Maybe it's about personality types, but we have a lot of that boxed into 
you know, a binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the caller said, you know, they haven't, you know, been successful with cis men, got it. Me too. Um, and I'm not saying that all cis men are therefore, you know, people that I can no longer be attracted to. And so I think these absolute terms and these assumptions, um, based on, you know, identities or race, you know, can be really problematic because it means that, you know, it's, it's really still seated in this gender roles, patriarchal structure. So I just want to challenge that caller to think a little bit more about, um, how we can understand what our types are and what, um, and how they were formed, because this can be something that, um, can be very offensive. If you're reducing this trans person to what you believe or assume this trans person is about. I want to avoid um, the, the dreaded P word here, preferences, but I do believe yeah. people have sexual orientations. And okay. what I hear when someone says, I'm not sure I'm attracted to a trans man is someone mm-hmm. saying, I'm not sure I'm attracted to someone who has female genitalia. Mm-hmm. despite the fact that I'm attracted to men, I recognize trans mm-hmm. men are men, trans men are, you know, there's trans men out there I'm attracted to, mm-hmm. but genitalia, I think matters to a lot of people around sexual orientation. And there, this is obviously a caller who's thinking about reassessing the assumptions they made about who they're attracted to and why and what they're capable of. And, and but they don't yet know because they've never been with a man who doesn't have a penis. And, is that something you mention to the first man you date who doesn't have a penis or is that something that you like have in the back of your mind and you spare them that sort of qualifier about, you know, assessing whether you're able to respond erotically and sexually mm-hmm. to someone who doesn't have the genitalia typically associated with men. So what was not clear to me from the call was whether or not disclosure of genitalia was even something that happened yet. And so that assumption that, you know, this person does not have a penis and that's something that I want or need was again, another thing that kind of just hit me the wrong way in these assumptions about Mm -hmm. what people's body parts look like because of their, um, identity. If, if the answer is I want to start a family and I, and I really want it to be that our, both of our DNA is a part of this, you know, building of the family. Um, and so I need someone you know, that can provide me with their specific sperm cell, got it. Like that's, I understand that uh, requirement or that, um, that choice to specifically date um, cis men. But when it's about attraction, that's the part that bothers me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if it does have to do with genitalia, I mean, we have been very creative in the sex toy industry, <laughs> right? So uh-huh. if if you if you appreciate that person for the being that they are and their personality and how they uplift and affirm you, you know, then we have a certain toy that can match the physical need that you have. I'm not saying that that's going to fix everything, but you know, the the initial impression of like I just don't do this, I'm open to it, but I'm assuming this about them is where I don't want that barrier to prevent an actual connection from being formed. It's not an unreasonable assumption though. Most trans men don't get bottom surgery. Sure. Sure. And so it's not an unreasonable assumption. It's not something that's unreasonable to think about. And the trans people I know want to live in a world where more people, and they do live in this world now, I think increasingly where more people 
are open now to dating trans people than were in the past. And I think trans people need to approach dating with a sense of abundance uh, as opposed to limitation. I recently had a trans guy call into the show who got on Grinder, and he got so many positive responses, he was having a hard time filtering, you know, mm. picking the guys he was going to get with. He didn't get on Grinder and have a lot of gay cis men telling him to get off Grinder because he didn't have a penis. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of interest there. And right. I, sometimes I think that's surprising, particularly maybe for older trans people that we live in a world now where there's mm -hmm. more and more people who are open to dating trans people. And that's what we want, right? And right. yet to get there, people have to become open to dating trans people. And yeah. this caller, I think, is right there at that precipice. Not the precipice. It's not going to like plunge to their death. They're <laughs> right there, you know, in that liminal state between yeah. I'm close to dating trans people. You know what? I'm reassessing that I had been close to dating trans people, and I think I'm open to it now. But she doesn't know until she dates a trans person, what the reality of that is going to be like. Yeah. And if you're the first trans person someone dates, do you want to be told that? Right. So I think what this caller should do is disclose right off the bat whatever anxiety they might have. Hey, I am attracted to the pictures that I'm seeing and how we're vibing. And I want to see um, you know, what this could become. You're also the very first trans person I've ever dated, and I want to honor, you know, your own comfort level as to whether or not you would be willing to engage in a date or a relationship with someone who has never done this before. I think that's perfectly, that's why you're the ghostwriter. I think that's perfectly, <laughs> perfectly put and the caller should back up the podcast and transcribe that and, and have that saved to, to, to put out there. This reminds me of, you know, my friends with HIV, some of them, you know, back in the scariest days of the pandemic, were open to dating guys who were nervous, you know, who had never been with a pause guy who was out to them. And some of them didn't want to have to deal with that anxiety or that, you know, emotional labor or burden. Same thing with, you know, gay men dating someone who's never been with a man before or lesbians dating someone who's never been with a woman before. Right. Some gay men and lesbians up for that. Some aren't. If you disclose, then the person you're about to date can choose. And so I think putting that out there I would hope doesn't make a trans person feel objectified or put on notice, but empowered to decide whether they're up for dating you or not. I hope so, too. It gives them agency um, and everyone's being transparent. Justine Ang Fonte, intersectional sex educator, the genius behind Goodbyes on Instagram, your friendly ghostwriter. Follow her on Instagram at underscore good dot buys, B-Y-E-S, underscore. You can also follow our own account at I'm Justine AF. Justine, thank you so much for jumping back on uh, on, on the phone to to actually take some questions and, and, and show why you are the ghostwriter. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate this. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old female. I'm calling with a question about a sex video I made to a friend. We used to have an affair. We haven't been together in about three years, but we still flirt and talk about the old times and sex. And we talked about do, making each other's uh, sex videos, and I made him one. And I put it online and gave him the link. And I could tell that he opened and watched it two times. And I talked to him a week after. He said he loved the video, and he watched it many, many times. And 
now I'm like trapped in my head with this question, like, why did he say he watched it many times and why did he only watch it twice? I thought it was a really great video and I can't help thinking that he, for some reason, is just being polite, telling me he liked it because he only watched it twice. So is that normal? Is it normal? Is it normal to be polite? I'd love to live in a world where it was normal to be polite, as I assume you would, as I assume we all would. Is it normal to watch a dirty video that a former sex partner made for you and to only watch it twice and then tell that partner that you watched it many, many times? Well, I guess it depends on what your definition of the word many is. Maybe he was just telling you what he thought he should tell you, what he thought you wanted to hear. Maybe he was extrapolating out into a future where he anticipated watching this video over and over again. So use the expression many, many when he should have used the expression twice already. Or maybe he downloaded the video onto another device, onto a phone or an iPad or a laptop that it was easier for him to watch it on than whatever he watched it on the two times that you could track him watching it on and has been furiously jacking off to this video every spare moment of the day since you sent it to him. This is the sort of thing that I think you shouldn't spend too much time worrying about. Either he's watched it many, 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 many times on some other device, or he watched it a couple of times and he really liked it and wanted to be complimentary and exaggerated exactly how many times he'd watched it. Either way, yeah, don't take it too hard rather than ordering him to pretend to watch it another 30 or 40 times so you can see that number count jump. Ask him where's the video that he was going to make and send to you. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Brooklyn Bolnese tweets, as a currently single person getting back into dating, it warms my heart that so many people are such terrible liars. Thank you, Nancy and at Fake Dan Savage for the April Fool's episode of the Savage Lovecast. A boy about tweets regarding the April Fool's episode. I wanted to object to your assumption that in the fake question, from the caller whose fake folks were getting it on with his fake sex toys, the fake dad was the one getting pegged with the caller's strap-on. Just as likely that fake mom's a DP fanatic and women like her should not be marginalized. And finally, Burnaby Dan tweets, Savage Lovecast episode 805, your fake, fake, fake show was one of your best shows ever. Please repeat the format next year. And so awesome to have Nancy a part of the show. Such a refreshing change. Everyone loved the fakes show and everyone loved having Nancy on for an entire episode, me included. That said, a year is way too long to wait for more Nancy on the Lovecast, so I will do my best to get her back on the show before then. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And everybody out there who posted to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or wherever on your social media this week about the Lovecast, Thank you very much. We sincerely appreciate how you're helping to spread the word about the Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. This is in response to the April Fool's Day episode. I was hearing the person talk about the bone fetish, and I was hoping it was real because I guess I kind of have the same thing. I know Dan expected that most of the people with this would be guys, but 
definitely almost everyone I've dated has been abnormally skinny and I love feeling their hips and their jawbones and not really elbows or knees because everyone has those, but definitely the skinny thing going on. And I, I, we've been sitting on the couch and I've started to kind of bite my partner's shoulders until he's been like, that, that hurts, stop. And I often use the hip bone. You can kind of put your hand between the hip and where the skin goes down and it makes a little handle kind of. Um, that just gives me a new way of thinking about it. That's kind of interesting. Hi, Dan Savage. This is just a quick weigh-in regarding your comment in episode 805 that women wouldn't know they have fertility issues until until they try to conceive. Um, this could be true, but not always, and it doesn't have to be. Fertility awareness is something all girls should be taught, whether they want babies or are trying to avoid them, or even if they're on the fence. It's good to know your body and its cycles. You can also teach yourself um, the signs of ovulation if, and if they aren't present again even if you've never tried for a baby you'll know that it might be a challenge um, even though it's not impossible for most i'm not against the pill or anything i just think women have the right to know their bodies and we're failing to educate on this most people aren't even aware that even a super fertile woman can only get pregnant around four or five days a month tops hi dan and nancy 65 year old female with a response about the multi-orgasmic woman in the april fool's show Maybe she's like me. As a penis haver, you know how you get an initial strong orgasmic contraction, followed by what I call aftershocks. They go on for a while, decreasing in intensity until they taper off. Clitoris havers get aftershocks too, but my aftershocks can go on and on. If properly nurtured, they steady out at about 6 to 10 per minute. My partner and I have kept them going for over a half hour with no sign we couldn't keep going indefinitely. Sometimes there's an actual second orgasm in there, but usually not. This is all without a vibrator. We think it's a really fun sexual superpower. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. This weekend, Hump, my dirty little film festival, is streaming online and screening in theaters in Montreal, Columbus, Brooklyn, and Sacramento. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets and links. And Magnum Subs, a reminder, this Thursday is Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout for Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast. Be on the lookout for the link in your email on Thursday morning. And if you're not already a subscriber to the Magnum Savage Lovecast and you'd like to join us for Sack Lunch this Thursday, go to savage.love and become a subscriber today. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Justine Ang Fonti's Goodbyes account on Instagram at underscore good dot buys underscore. That's B-Y-E-S. She's also at I'm Justine AF on Instagram. And you can learn more about Justine and her other work at her website, JustineFonti.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by the smart and hilarious and funny and wonderful. And we will have her back on the show before a year is up. Nancy Hartunian and me and the techs of the at-risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week on an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for joining